Psalm 78, verses 49 through 72, these are God's words. He cast on them the fierceness of his anger, wrath, indignation, and trouble. By sending angels of destruction among them, he made a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave their life over to the plague and destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt, the first of their strength in the tents of Ham. But he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them and he brought them to his holy border, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. He also drove out the nations before them, allotted them an inheritance by survey, and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God, and did not keep his testimonies, but turned back and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger, with their high places, and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men, and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a mighty man who shouts because of wine, and he beat back his enemies. He put, he put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. He also chose his David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes that had, that had young, he brought him <coughs> to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them, shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. So far, the reading of God's inspired and inerrant word. We see here how needful it is that we would have the law and the testimony which the Lord established in Jacob, that the fathers should teach their children, that they should teach uh, a generation yet unborn, that they would teach their children, and that those would teach uh, a generation uh, yet unborn. Uh, We need this law and this testimony because... This is how the Lord Jesus works in his people. This is how the Lord Jesus, the forever king, produces a people who fear God, the way Psalm 72 describes. Simply by the greatness of any particular king, uh, other than Christ, uh, there is no other king than Jesus who can actually make his people fear the Lord, the way that the king in Psalm 72, the forever king promised in Second Samuel 7, will make his people fear the Lord. That's our great hope. Not that we will be able to repent by our strength or goodness, but that we have a king who is able to grant to us among his other royal gifts, not just his royal protection, not just royal provision in material things, but even the royal provision of his spirit, who by his word produces his own character, 
in us. That is what is needed. That is what the Lord gives in times like these with parents teaching their children the word of God and King Jesus using that word to work by his spirit in the hearts of children, giving them repentance and faith. We can see what it is like uh, apart from that in what Israel has been like throughout all of this. Despite God's pouring out his wrath upon Egypt unto death, and the passage that we started is obviously that we began in the middle of the psalm, and it might have taken you a, a moment or two to realize that it was Egypt that was under the plague of death at the beginning of our reading, not Israel. His people still did not fear to test and provoke him by violating his word, like we read in verse 56. And despite all of the patience that we see, really through the bulk of the psalm from verse 10 through verse 55, the gentleness with which the Lord led them like a flock in verse 52, the deliverance that the Lord gave them from their enemies, verse 53, the generosity in which the Lord gave them the land, driving out other enemies before them, in verses 54 and 55, despite all of that the Lord had done for them, the people were still not faithful to him, but they were treacherous, like a deceitful bow, uh, a bow that does not, whether you're using it even as a walking stick, uh, and it puts your shoulder out of joint, the way the proverb describes, or even worse, when you're trying to, to shoot, and it twists in the middle of your shot, or even breaks on you. They were treacherous. The Lord uh, had displayed his wrath, and they didn't uh, abide by that. They didn't respond to that. The Lord had displayed uh, his goodness, and they did not respond rightly to that. They even transgressed the covenant, or sorry, the commandment. They even transgressed the commandment, whose violators the Lord calls those who hate me. Uh, we see in verse 58, they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. And the Lord says that those who worship in any other way that he has commanded, or even more specifically in the way that they create, that they are the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. And you see the Lord's generational covenantal thinking, even in the threats that are made uh, within the Decalogue in the Second Commandment, but also the generational thinking that is persistent throughout this psalm. So the Lord responds in the events to which verses 59 through 64 uh, refer. These events are the Philistine attacks, and especially when these people who are idolatrous, one of the last strokes of their idolatry was not having respected God and his tabernacle, his strength and his glory dwelling among them, but coming up with their own ways to worship him, which replaces the strength and glory of God with the ideas and feelings of man, which is how idolatry always works. The last way that he let them do this at least in the event described in verses 59 through 64, was by thinking that if they brought the Ark of God into the battle, that somehow it would work like uh, a magic charm, uh, and they would be able to defeat the Philistines. But it was actually the Lord so angry with Israel that he 
is willing to give his strength and his glory into the hands of the Philistines. And of course, the ark doesn't remain being the strength and glory of God at that point. He displays his strength and glory over against the Philistines, judging them uh, as it goes from city to city among them. But here, the language is very grievous. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel. He forsook his tabernacle. He delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand, verses 60 and 61. These are shocking words and shocking actions. Our hearts are hard and dull, and we don't realize how much God despises man-made religion. <coughs> that when the living God has uh, has come up with his way of giving himself to us, and of course that great way is not a tent that was made in the wilderness, that great way is the Lord Jesus. That great way is the Holy Spirit. That great way is the Holy Spirit blessing his word to bring us to faith in Jesus. And so when the Lord has done that and we come up with our own ways to God, our own ways that we think make it more meaningful, our own ways that we think make it more effective, our own ways that we think make it a better experience, of course it's offensive. And it's offensive with an offensiveness that is as great as God's glory, as great as the glory of Christ in the gospel, the glory of the Spirit, as God's best gift who brings us to Christ. God's best gift being himself in the Son and in the Spirit. And so since we aren't appropriately shocked by our own sin, he takes shocking action and he speaks in shocking words there in verses 59 through 61, uh, and the end of it, uh, down to the priest's wife who doesn't mourn. You remember Phineas's wife was in labor when she heard about her husband, her wicked husband, dying also in the battle, or as a consequence of the battle. And she doesn't really respond to that or grieve uh, over him. Her only response is Ichabod, which ends up being the name of the boy. But the name means the glory has departed. Perhaps there is some indication there that her faith was more like her father-in-law's. As Eli was devastated by the loss of the ark even more than by the loss of his sons. And so should we. You remember Aaron being told by Moses to... Uh, to keep his peace, hold his peace, when his sons Nadab and Abihu had been killed because they came near to God, but they didn't regard God as holy. And Moses said, this is what God has said. before. By those who draw near to me, I must be hallowed. And so what we learn in places like that, in Leviticus uh, 10, I believe it is, and here in Psalm 78 and there in 1 Samuel 4, and really throughout the whole Bible, realizing that it is by the gift of Jesus and by the gift of the Spirit that God brings us near to himself. And so all of his instructions for his worship are tied to the great glory, not only of who he is, but also of how he has given us to come to him. And the great lesson is that worshiping God in any other way is a tragedy greater than the loss of our children, than Aaron's loss of Nadab and Abihu than Eli's loss of Hophni and Phinehas, 
and Phineas's wife wife's loss of her husband. The glory has departed. Here is the great thing that fathers teach their children by the law and their test and, and the testimony. The glory of God and the glory of the gospel in which God has devised the way of giving himself to men. This is what I hope that we are learning together week by week in the assembly, day by day, in our home, our your entire childhood, that the glorious God has given himself to us and that this is to be rejoiced in and therefore to be very carefully followed that we not come to him in any other way, whether that means worshiping up uh, in opposition to the regulative principle or, and especially when you realize that you're a sinner and that you must stand before God, that you would always know that the only way that you can belong to God safely, that you can be before God safely, is by his gift of himself and his son, for which he has given his spirit to bless his word to you, to give you that soft heart, to give you repentance, that you would indeed fear his wrath with a right fear, and that you would indeed embrace his goodness with a right appreciation and love, and that you would not be treacherous towards him, but that he would give you a sincere heart in all of your repenting, in all of your worshiping, that comes from his Spirit who gives you faith in Jesus, and that Jesus would be your worthiness, and Jesus would be your atonement, and that this would be how we live our lives in response to the glorious God and his glorious gospel. The end of the psalm, of course, is about how God gave them a king uh, through whom he would actually produce the difference in them. This is his response to the distress of his people. He wakes as from sleep, verse 65, like a mighty man, he beats back his enemies, puts them to a perpetual reproach, and gives them a king. And he skips over the king from Benjamin. It's as if Saul never happened, because the point was to get to David. Not the people's way, but the Lord's way, even in kings. Right? The people would have chosen a man like Saul, who was head and shoulders above everyone else and from a prominent family, etc. But he takes uh, he takes David from uh, uh, following the ewes and taking care uh, of the little lambs, and he makes them the shepherd of Jacob, his people. But it's not David so much as great David's greater son. Look at verse 69. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has established forever. Uh, that indeed is a reference to Christ who, uh, in one sense, is, uh, is David as he's from David. Uh, but especially in the other sense, David is also a type of Christ. We had that language in Romans 5 yesterday, that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. Uh, here, David also is a type of the one who was to come from David. And the Lord Jesus shepherds his people according to the integrity of his heart which is a perfect integrity. And the Lord Jesus guides his people by the skillfulness of his hands, which is a perfect skillfulness. And so when we realize the greatness of our need, uh, we may resort to remembering the greatness of God's provision for that need in the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus, by his Spirit, blessing his word to us, is the one who will keep us from forgetting God, but make us to remember our God and to remember all of his works, and to remember that the greatest of all of these works 
has been to give himself to us in Jesus and in his Spirit, who uses his word to give us faith in Jesus. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us and our children to ourselves, but that you have given us yourself in the Son and in the Spirit, that we might remember you and that we might know and treasure your presence with us, your gathering us to yourself, your giving us repentance, your giving us faith. And so we pray that we would treasure your word as the means by which you do this, the instrument that your spirit uses to join us to Christ by faith. And we pray that we would not be treacherous, that we would not depart from your word, but that as a gift of Christ to us, we would be repentant and believing and grow, even as your spirit conforms us to our perfect king. In whose name we ask it. Amen.